Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So, hi everybody. Uh, welcome to the 4.30 session. Today we're going to talk about socialist revenue sharing in our India studio. Uh, as they mentioned, my name is Matthew Vione. I am one of the co-founders of Soma Sim. We are a small indie studio based in Chicago, Illinois, and we make simulation strategy games. Um, so far, our first game was called 1849. It is a city builder game set during the California Gold Rush that came out in 2014. Then we made a game called Project High Rise, where you're the architect, developer, and builder of a skyscraper. And that came out in 2016. And we are currently deep into our next game, about which I can say that picture uh, is unannounced. But we are working on it and hope to say more about it soon. So today, what we're going to be talking about is sort of how this idea of being a socialist revenue share studio has really sort of suffused um, our experience as an indie game studio in the past six years. So we'll start with like the how and why we started our game studio. Um, go into a little bit of what we mean when we say RevShare and how we do it specifically. And how it's really worked for us over the past six years as we made and released two games and are working on our third one. Um, we'll start, then we'll finish with some uh, important safety tips if you would like to pursue this on your own, just some things that may not seem obvious at the get-go. And then hopefully we'll have some time for Q&A, so write them down on Twitch as I'm talking, and Larry and Brandon will pick them out, and we'll go from there. So I want to go back in time to 2010. This is sort of the time when we had decided that uh, at some point we're going to want to make it and start an indie game studio on our own and really start making games. At that point in time, Rob Zubek, my co-founder, was about a year under working at Zynga. He previously worked at a small startup called Three Rings and before that at EA. So he's a game dev veteran. And I was the director of communications at a large nonprofit in San Francisco. I refer to myself to this day as a recovering graphic designer. Um, and as we sort of thought about how we were going to start making games and what we wanted to do, we you know, looked into how you would normally go about making games as an indie. Um, a more traditional approach would be you create a pitch deck, you write up your ideas and thoughts for a game, you shop it around to a bunch of publishers, they might like it and give you money, or you could start looking for people who are looking for sort of uh, contract games to be made. So, you know, we needed a Batman game made, something you want to do. So then they say, if they like your pitch or if you want to make a game for them, here's some money. Why don't you go manage a bunch of people who make the game for us and then that puts you in the role of managing both the team that's making the game and managing the relationship with the funders and doing a lot of management both up and down. And to be honest, in our careers, we had sort of ended up there in 2010 anyway. And it's not something that was really attractive to us that we wanted to keep doing. A lot of people are great at management and um, 
really derive a lot of professional satisfaction from it, but that wasn't us. We really wanted to be here. We wanted to be the ones getting our hands dirty and making games, making the day-to-day creative decisions, and really carrying them out and implementing them. But, you know, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we also wanted to be there a little bit, uh, where that money and control comes a lot of creative control over the game. So that's one of the things we're freaking out, is how do we be in both of those places? So now I want to flash forward to 2013. This is when we actually decided to uh, take the plunge, quit our jobs, and start our own indie studio. And these are sort of the three main things that drove a lot of our decision-making process. We wanted to make games. We didn't want to be in charge of other people who were making games. We wanted to be in the trenches working. Um, We wanted to make simulation strategy games. They're something that we're really good at, and I think, I hope, and something that we play a lot of, and those are my actual hours on Civ Five. Um, and we also wanted to be a company that we didn't want to be a company that make that happens to make games. We wanted to be a, to have a company because we wanted to make games. And I know that's a little convoluted, but hopefully, as I go on, that starts to make more sense about our vision for what we wanted the company that we were starting to be, the corporate entity. Also, at this point in time, we were starting to think about, well, what are we good at and what are we going to need help with? So what are we bad at? Um, We are not artists. I'm a designer. Rob is a programmer. And we have programmer and designer art. We are not good at actual making art, animation, graphics programming, and most things that have to do with visuals. We knew we would need help with that. Sound, audio, composing, music, that's all a big black box of mystery to us. It's not something that we have the faintest idea how to go about approaching. Um, Also, when it comes to things like UI, UX, design, and art, uh, you really need somebody, especially in a simulation game that is so UI, UX heavy, so heavy on the UI, to really come in and take ownership of that themselves. Um, And sort of lastly, marketing PR and other distribution black magic. Uh, having been a communication instructor for a while overseeing marketing, I had enough self-awareness to realize that I couldn't be a game designer and market the game at the same time. That's just not something that was going to work. And that's something that we learned going on during our first game. And again, I just want to stress that this is not an exhaustive list of things that we aren't good at. We learn new things about that every day. So to summarize, as we were getting ready to start making games as an indie studio in 2013, we wanted to be the makers. We didn't want to get external funding. We didn't want to play startup. A lot of people do enjoy starting up companies, going through that whole process. They find the whole thing invigorating, but that's not us. We wanted to be makers and not managers. But because of that, we knew that there were things that we were going to need help with when we started to make our games. And here's where we went into our first big problem, is that how do we pay those people that we're going to need help with if we're not going to be taking money and playing that traditional game that we had talked about before. So let's dig into that problem a little bit. So to get help, we probably need to you know, pay the people who work on our game, the artists, the contractors, the people who work with us to help realize our vision. Um, but then something happened in 2013 that made us question, do we really? Uh, Rob went to a talk given by Randy Smith, the founder of Tiger Style, at GDC in 2013, where he really went through and detailed how they run their studio on a revenue share model. And that's sort of when a light bulb went on for, off for us, where we could sort of 
maybe this was the solution for our problem. This was how we could overcome us not having a lot of money and still needing help and wanting to um, really start out the studio. And uh, Meg earlier today did a good job of really highlighting some of the other reasons about why it's important to maybe consider revenue share as you start up your studio. So I want to, that's also the, that's the link for Randy's GDC talk. If you want to check it out, it's really worth checking out. It inspired us a great deal. So I just want to talk about as we were setting up our revenue share model to overcome this problem, uh, what that actually means. So we take revenue uh, based on the hours contributed to the game. So to give a specific example, let's say that we're looking at money that came in from Steam or from a publisher or from any other source of revenue to the company for the PC game in February of 2018. So we sort of look and see how many hours are contributed to the game in at that point in February 2018. Then we divide up each contributor's hours. And if you contribute 35% of the hours to the game, then we give you 35% of the revenue. Um, and for us, it's an egalitarian reward structure. Uh, my hours as a co-founder are no more valuable than a programmer's or a artist's or somebody who does QA or anybody else who contributes to the success of the game. Um, they do, we do have people who take on a share of the risk as well, as we'll get into in a little bit, but we really feel that it's important to reward everyone who contributed to the success of the game. And this is really an approach that's close to a lot of other aesthetic and creative fields. Like if we were starting up a band, we wouldn't say, oh, you're just the drummer. You're only getting less than me as the lead singer. I'm the one who does the prestige. Like the drummer is just as important to the band as everyone else in our view. Um, and really, we hope that this sort of makes everyone involved in the success of a game more independent if it succeeds. Not just us as co-founders, but our artists should be more independent. Our programmers should be more independent. Everybody who works with us should become more independent as a result of the game. That's our goal. Um, so specifically, like the features of this rev share when we put it into practice, what does it look like? Uh, we don't. No one gets paid during development. Everybody sort of assumes the risk of not getting paid and then receiving all of their reward later after the game releases. No one works for the company. Everyone is an independent contractor on their own. So um, we're sort of a team of indies making an indie studio. Um, we don't have any, the studio itself does not have any employees. Um, and as I said before, an hour is an hour is an hour is an hour. My hour is no more valuable than anyone else's when it comes to the success or, God forbid, failure of a video game project. Uh, our revenue share is forever. As long as the game makes money, we will keep paying out people. There is no expiry on our revenue share agreement. Um, the company does keep a certain percentage of revenue for things like royalty advances and some other things like you know, paying lawyers um, to review contracts, things of that nature. That really depends on the nature of the game that we're working on. Um, we do pay advances if people need uh, some money to help get them through to release. Uh, we view that as a loan against future revenues. So when revenue does come in, they just pay the company back and then they participate in RevShare after that. Um, it is a RevShare studio. Uh, it's not a co-op. Rob and I as co-founders are still very much in charge of the studio. But the revenue share hopefully does keep everybody 
significantly more invested in the outcome of the game project. And some of the advantages of pursuing this model, uh, we don't pay anyone a salary. We really only pay for work when we need it. Like if we don't need an artist for a few months because uh, things aren't happening, we don't have to have an artist sitting around not doing anything or have to find work for them to do or something like that. And we also only pay the money that we actually get since we don't have salaries. Um, when we get money in, money goes back out. Uh, it makes remote work and part-time contribution a lot more feasible. Our UI UX designer and artist has had a full-time job while working with us for the past six years. And one of the reasons that he can contribute is because this model really allows people to contribute where they are in life. Not, And if they can't work full-time with us, that's fine. They just contribute what they can, and then they're rewarded for what they contributed. Um, it greatly reduces management crap because we don't have employees or other things like that. Um, also, it really keeps overhead low because we don't have funders, because we're not beholden to uh, um, anybody with the checkbook. We sort of don't have to do things like reports and things like that. We only do um, things when it's necessary. This is sort of what we call emergent business planning, um, which basically means we make it up as we go. Um, and this is the most important one. Ideally, revenue from game one funds game two, and then the revenues from the long tails from game one and two combine to help us fund and hopefully make a little bit larger game three, and so on and so forth. And so hopefully that means that we can avoid getting on the funding treadmill and not playing that particular game. But this model does have some downsides. One of them is it really limits your scope to what you can afford. If we had tomorrow decided we wanted to make an expensive, shiny RPG, um, that would mean a significant investment that really we just can't afford unless we can find a whole bunch of people to go and um, work for us on RevShare. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It really helps us keep our scope honest to what we can actually do a lot of the time. Um, it can make taking funding very difficult. When you're working uh, on a revenue share basis, you're really dependent on that revenue after release. And a lot of these agreements with publishers or funders that you may fund will greatly reduce or sometimes even eliminate the royalties that you get as a developer on the back end, which is what we sort of depend on to feed the team and keep everyone going. Uh, it can make finding people difficult. Uh, do you want to come work with us for two years and not really get paid very much and not get paid market rate can not maybe be an attractive proposition. You really have to trust the people that you're going into business with. It sort of limits the potential pool that people you know, who you've worked with in the past, former coworkers and things like that. It can make keeping people hard. Uh, as I said before, one of the features is that we don't have to pay the artist when they're not working, but they still probably want to work. Um, so they may go out and find a contract. And then when it comes time for me to say, we're ready for art for our next game, they may say, I've got a contract for six months. So that can be a problem in aligning those schedules and keeping the people that you do work with. Uh, rewarding ports and expansions can be difficult. And we'll get into that in a little more detail in a bit. And it's hard to reward work that's not related to a specific game since all of the revenue is tied, revenue sharing is tied to a specific game. So if we wanted to do like a server team or an engine team, um, if that's not tied to the revenue from a specific game, that's really hard to figure out how to reward. Uh, it's also hard to reward for tasks that would be sort of shared resources at a larger studio. So things like audio, which, you know, it's 400 hours to create audio for a game, but it's 20,000 hours that's a very insignificant proportion of revenues. So you end up having to do some 
outside contracting for some of these uh, tasks that don't really rise to the level of rev share significance. So I just want to take us a little bit through the history of our studio and how revenue shares really worked for us. 1849 was our first game, but initially our first idea was let's make a skyscraper simulation game. We realized after doing some calculating and planning that that would take about two years to make. Then we glanced at our bank account and said, oh, there's only about a year or so of money there to pay us and maybe fund a few people to help. Um, so we came with a new plan. Let's make a Gold Rush Town Sim game that we thought that we could make in about a year. So to make 1849, which was born of that decision, it was the two of us, Rob and I as co-founders, a UI UX designer who Rob had worked with at Zynga, who came on at RevShare, and then a paid art contractor. And this was our first RevShare, oops. Uh, as co-founders, we funded the art contractor, but we didn't pay ourselves back from revenues, so we would learn. Um, we completed and released 1849 in about 14 months. And if you want to know more about it, I gave a talk at GDC in 2015 about how we did that. So some of the aftershocks from 1849. Uh, we learned that we're not so good at doing the self-publishing thing. Uh, making and marketing games in tandem uh, is a recipe for a lot of work and not a lot of sleep and not a huge amount of success. And we realized we needed help with that. On the upside, 1849 did get us the attention of some publishers who could potentially help us with that. Uh, we found an artist, the artist who worked with us and who incidentally has done most of the images in this talk. Um, we found out that we worked really well together as we made 1849. Um, so we made enough money to support ourselves from 1849 for about two years going forward, we figured, according to like our calculations of what we had made and what we could expect from a tale. Um, and remember that thing that we said it would take about two years to make? Yeah, that's what we were going to do next. Uh, in the interlude, we decided that our heart wasn't actually in San Francisco. It was back in Chicago. And so we took the opportunity to relocate ourselves back to Chicago. And I could give a whole talk about how Chicago is a great city for making games and just for living in. But that's another time. So we moved back to the city where skyscrapers were born to make Project High Rise, our skyscraper simulation game. It was the same base team as 1849. Our artist joined us on our rev share pool. The revenues from 1849 did allow us to give him a little bit of an advance as we worked toward making the game. It took about 28 months from start to release to complete. Uh, it was the same core team throughout. We added some part-time coding help here and there to help out Rob in development. Uh, they were also on RevShare. Uh, we just made it. We said we had about two years, and we were uh, painfully right as we approached release of the game in September of 2016. Uh, in the meantime, we had also got a publisher. And a publisher on RevShare model, you might say, how does that exactly work? We sort of view them as taking another cut of revs um, and being another RevShare partner. Just like we bring in an artist when we're not great at art, we brought in a publisher because we're not great at marketing and doing all of the things that they do very well. We did get lucky. We really liked Casido and their parent company, Calypso Media. They're great people, and we really enjoy working with them. And this did allow us to adjust the RevShare formula a little bit. For 1849, the company kept 30% of the revenues because we were doing all of the publishing work ourselves. So all the translation, the trailers, so many so much advertising work, a whole bunch of other things that go into 
um, making a game. But since our publisher was going to be taking care of all of that for now, I and mean, this was going to come out of their cut of revenues, um, that really allowed us to adjust the formula down to 15% and kick more back to the participants in the revenue share pool. So we released Project High Rise, and it worked. It really was more successful than we could have hoped we were planning, and we're very grateful for that success. Um, the core team kept working on it more or less full-time for 18 months after we released the game. Uh, we did one major expansion, four smaller D DLCs, and I way more than 15 just free updates and additions to the game during that time. Uh, all of that post-ship content was revenue share funded. So once the, all the advances got paid back, which happened fairly quickly, uh, everyone was able to work on all of the this 18 months of post-ship content based on their um, revenues from the game that they were earning. Uh, and that's all great, but it blocked the production pipeline, which, as we'll see in a bit, was sort of an issue for us and something we need to work on going forward. So then it came time to work on ports for Project High Rise. We had told our publisher that we would do a mobile, that we think about doing a mobile port. And after we did the first big expansion for High Rise, we set to work on the Android and iOS versions of Project High Rise for tablets. That took about nine months, and while we were doing that, it was about the time that the Switch came, was coming out, and there were some dev kits floating around the Indie City Co-op where we work here in Chicago with other game developers. Um, me being a Nintendo fanboy, I approached one of the people who was working on a console port and for Switch and said, would you like to work on our console port when you're done? We explained our rev share arrangement, and he said, great, let's do that. So we went to our publisher and said, we'd like to do a Switch version. They said, well, we've never done a Nintendo game. Let us think about it. So they did, and they came back and said, yeah, we'd like to do a Nintendo version, but we'd also like to do these other two as well. So we went back and talked to our friend and said, would you like to help us with all of this porting work? And that led us to the problem of then when we start getting revenues in for the console version, how do we structure the revenue share for the, both the console version and the mobile version of the game? Um, we want to be fair to those who built the base game because really in all of those ports, the art is essentially the same, the simulation is essentially the same, a lot of the coding is the same, a lot of the underlying infrastructure is the same. But we want to be fair to those who did the work for the port. And I just want to take a sidetrack for a moment to talk a, for a sec about simulation game UI, because this is why the ports are a lot of work. Project High Rise has a lot of UI, like most simulation games. And really, any time that you change an input modality for a game, whether that's touch or controller or keyboard and mouse, you really have to reconsider all of your UI affordances as you're designing the game. So again, simulation games and Project High Rise in particular have a lot of UI elements. So this is where a lot of that work in porting came from. Um, we did essentially three different versions of the UI for Project High Rise. That's not something that I can recommend if you're thinking about making a game, but it is nonetheless something that we did. So compensating for the work that's done on these ports in a rev share model, like how does that exactly work and how did we solve that one? Um, so far we have just over 20,000 total hours of human effort that have gone into Project High Rise and the revenue share pool. Of that, just over 15,000, or 75%, give or take, was on the base PC game. It took us just over 3,000 hours and, strangely, exactly 1,800 hours to do the console version. So if you worked on all of the effort that went into making the desktop version, you get revenue share from that. 
But when it comes to the console ports and the mobile ports, we also feel like because a lot of your work is there, you should also be rewarded for that work on those platforms. However, we don't want to just reward people who worked on mobile version for mobile money, mobile revenues when they come in for just those hours. So how did we square that one? We basically just added a fudge factor for hours that were done in console ports by, in our case, we chose four. We thought that that's where it shook out best. So if you look on the far right, the circled number, that's the number of hours that uh, our friend who worked on the console version put into working on console versions. So we multiplied that by four. And then in other cases, we did the same, like I'm the second column, I think. Um, and then we added those in with the desktop hours, and that's how we calculated the revenue share. So he gets about 11% of the revenues that come in for the console version of the game. A few things about high-rise before we sort of leave it behind. Um, the first code commit for Project High-Rise was July, four, July 1st, 2014. Um, we are still working on Project High-Rise as of this stock, even though we are mostly on our next game, there's still Project High-Rise work that gets committed into our repos every week. And that really pushed out work on our next game. We didn't really start working in earnest on our third game until uh, 2019 started. Um, and for us as a revenue share studio, that's kind of a problem. A delayed release will delay the revenue that you get. And sort of as you delay release, then the tails that you're depending on to fund the studio, the further you get from the last release starts to get thinner and thinner and thinner. Um, so it really, for us, we would have preferred to start working on our game ahead of time, but Project High Rise, again, sort of took over our lives. So the real question for us is for our next game, how are we going to do better at supporting post-ship after release? Again, for Project High Rise, that's 18 months, two years and counting, um, while we're starting a new game. Uh, we could bring someone in at the end, but when we already have 10,000 hours in revenue share um, by a team or 12,000, and they start from scratch, how do we you know, adequately compensate them for that work and things like that? So as we sort of go forward working on our next game and planning for its release and launch, that's something that we're going to be really paying attention to. So next for us, as I sort of already have hinted, is we'll deep into working on our third game. Uh, we're mostly full-time on it at this point. Uh, it's the same core team uh, from 1849 and Project High Rise. So myself and Rob as co-founders are artists from 1849 and Project High Rise, as well as the UI UX designer from 1849 and Project High Rise. And the people who worked with us on the mobile and console ports for High Rise came on to work on AI and graphics for our next game. Um, and that's sort of kind of the long-term organic growth that we're looking to as a studio, sort of as we work with people as we sort of fill a need and we start working with new people like we did for the, for the ports, that we can bring them in and have them join the studio once they see how we work and how they work together. And really, as an added benefit, this size of like five to seven people, for us as a studio, sort of feels like a sweet spot when it comes to making our games. So I just want to conclude with a couple of things that may not be entirely obvious if you're looking into starting out a RevShare studio and some things that you should pay, that need to be paid attention to. Um, you really want to make sure you keep your overhead as low as possible. Um, that money that gets kicked back to the studio really forms like your war chest and it allows you to do things like 
pay for revenue share advances or bring in somebody to help you with composition of music and things like that. So the more that you can keep going with that, the, um, the better off that you'll be when it comes to um, funding your game. Sorry, my headphones just died, so I had to switch audio. Um, and then make it legal. As founders or co-founders, start an LLC or whatever the alphabet soup in your home country happens to be. Um, you're going to need to sign agreements with other people for work for hire agreements, for uh, to make sure that you know all the intellectual property is square with publishers, with storefronts, things like that. So it's best to form a corporate entity in your country. Um, don't keep money in your business money in your checking account. Get a business account. Uh, tax collectors look at you funny when you do things like mingle business money and personal money. Make sure that everyone signs work for hire agreements. This is a big one. When you go to sign with a publisher or with a storefront, there are clauses that say that all of the work that you've done is unique and owned by you. And without a work for hire agreement, you can't really legitimately say that. Um, so that means that you might really will need a lawyer sometimes to help review contracts, get things set up. Um, like for instance, our publisher is British and German, and I had no earthly idea how to deal with European contracts, so a lawyer really helped there. Um, and equally important is you'll need an accountant. Things with income and corporate taxes and independent contractors and international payments and things like that can get really complicated really fast. Um, in addition to all of these, I just want to reiterate that we formed our Revenue Share Studio based on an inspiration by Randy Smith. So we really took it and thought about what kind of studio we wanted to make, how we wanted to grow and develop. And then we changed things and um, created our own. So keep these important safety tips in mind. But the biggest one that I would leave you with is try to really envision what kind of studio you want to create, what kind of team you want to work with, and then design your revenue share around that. Hopefully you're inspired enough to do the egalitarian so that we practice it. Um, but again, it's up to you. And so if you have any questions or want to talk, that's my contact info. And I just want to give a quick shout out to our great artist who um, created most of the images in this talk. So that's about it. And let me know if you have any questions and I'd be happy to talk. Yep. Uh, we actually have some questions right now. So if you could stick around for a couple of minutes, I'm going to pull directly from Twitch. All right. Awesome. So I think there might be a little clarification. I think one person is asking for, so it says, uh, and this kind of came about the halfway point. They're asking, uh, oh, I can barely read it from here. Ofash uh, Gund, it looks like, says, so any funding that the studio gets during the development reduces your hourly share. So the news, hey, we got an influx of money. Does that mean that your revenue share for the work that you've done just got less valuable? Um, hmm. I don't know. We've never taken money. Um, oh, <laughs> fair enough. He's like, oh, so, we haven't had to deal with that because. <laughs> yeah, we haven't had to deal with that problem. I mean, yeah. imagine if you take money. Like, we have some things in our economy, some people that say, you know, if we money does come in, then yeah. we'll probably treat that as revenue and figure out a way to disperse it among the team. Um, oh, cool. But that's one of the clauses that we have in the contract that we've never actually used. So, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> no worries. Uh, that's, that's good honesty because 
you know, it's like, oh, well, we haven't had to deal with it, so mm-hmm. we haven't been. Anyway, uh, I, I do have a question personally, so I can see yeah. how this would easily help a studio grow, especially when you have people working remotely, and like you said, if people are moonlighting where they have X full-time job and can come on and put in 10, 20, 30, 40 hours for you in this project, I guess my question is, what is your ideal revenue share model for your studio in regards to, let's say your next game sells 20 million copies, uh, do, you, do you maintain with this method? Do you go over to like a full-time, fully employed kind of operation? Uh, I guess, have you put any thought into like the top level growth or <laughs> what, what you're gonna do there? I mean, for our next game, if it does sell 20 million copies, we've already signed up and done revenue share agreements this way for the next game. So oh. if it makes 20 million, we're just gonna split those up. Um, so, I mean, really, we sort of want to maintain this model. Like, mm-hmm. if we do have wild success, then, you know, hopefully that could, you know, maybe our artist then transitions into more of an art director role and it allows mm-hmm. us to then pay larger advances and help bring in somebody more seasoned or something like that. Oh, so we sort, of that. Want to main, we sort of want to maintain the team that we have, the way that we're doing it, and kind of grow more organically that way. Um, like I said, we're not, we're, we're in, we're interested in maintaining a sustainable, viable model of gaming development um, that is sustainable not just for us as co-founders, but sustainable for everybody on our team. So, yeah, that's sort of our plan going forward. Good to hear. I, I wish you guys nothing but success and growth, obviously, especially when you find your core team. One of my biggest regrets, I think, about being a part of any company is, hey, we made this really cool game and shipped it like, oh, and there goes two thirds of the team that just got laid off. Because, you know, we don't ever want to do this again. Obviously, that's why everybody's packing their stuff in their boxes. Well, uh, I mean, your model is very interesting because it actually promotes uh, a team sticking together, uh, having a part of ownership, basically, and, you know, enjoying the fruits of the labor. It's a huge, huge difference to what's going on right now. Uh, I feel, if anything, it, it motivates people to, like, really have some ownership in the product that you are all producing but also uh, the investment right now it really does feel like a team we rise and fall together in every single way and uh this is a huge is, is this something that you guys um I, you might have mentioned this already but um you thought of before you formed your studio or is something organically that happened uh, it's definitely something that we thought about before we formed the studio. Sort of like I, like I said, as we were in the process, I think listening to Randy talk about how they run Tiger Style was serendipitous in 2013. So that's when we were really thinking about, well, how are we going to pay people? How are we going to fund people? Um, and we decided, yes, let's do that. So from the get-go, that's something that we wanted to do. And also, um, again, we look at games in a totally different way, like more yeah. like, because they're an aesthetic product, they're art, they're entertainment, they're, um, have a lot more on, on the consumer side with you know, movies and TV and things like that. But then on the production side, we seem to have inherited a lot of uh, baggage because there are technical products too. So for us, we sort of looked at a mismatch between the production and the consumption models. So it's like, we weren't as, we see people, as developers being rewarded as if they're doing purely technical jobs, whereas the consumption on the other side um, is like it's an aesthetic product. And like, this is a lot of problem with things like credits. Like, um, if you ask people who wrote the Star Wars theme, 
uh, they can tell you, oh, that was John Williams. But, you know, who wrote the music in, like, Red Dead? Does anybody know that? Like, so there's a lack of connection to the producers that, you know, is also a symptom of this. If we maintain, like, us as people making these things versus some sort of anonymous studio, that's another thing that we want to sort of pursue as we do this is that, you know, it's not a company that made this. It, it is sort of a company that made this, but really the company is just, you know, the, five, the four or five of us who came together to make this game. So we sort of want to change that paradigm a little bit too. So when you think about where sorry when you think about where your company has been so far and like i love that you're like hey you know and we went back to chicago where skyscrapers were born to you know thematically prepare ourselves for what we're doing with high rise like being an agile studio it gives you those options it gives you the you know and sure there's probably other reasons why there's a move to chicago but i love that that's even tied into the product i i can see your studio has a lot more agility than other studios are there any sort of other advantages that you think that your studio size and makeup with how you do things has significantly helped you guys either escape difficulties that you've seen at other types of studios that are more brick and mortar solid in one primary location or enable to move and be flexible i guess where has your agility been your strength uh and this could be outside of revenue sharing etc but just in development wise yeah. i mean and one thing like we were like the move back to chicago is a good example we were living in san francisco which is not a Oof. cheap place to live or Oof. try to run a company <laughs> that's how um, i feel so like just being able to move back to a much more affordable city was is, is a good example of that kind of agility. Um, also, the, like, and I'm not sure how, if this is necessarily related to agility or what you would call this, um, but because we are tied to, you know, sort of the money that we have as a team and the funding that we can afford, it really makes us very careful about how we scope projects and how we plan work because we're not going to make any money uh, as a studio or as uh, game developers until the game releases. So anything that you know, if we're deciding we're, we're going to delay release of the game for three months to work on this, we have to make sure that you know that three months is going to really make a difference to the bottom line for everyone when it happens to come out. Um, so it helps keep us a little more honest when it comes to our development planning. So yeah, it really like is it worth delaying a game for six months? and putting off revenue for six months, like is this thing, this feature that we're adding that does that, is it going to really move the needle when it comes to release? So a lot of things like that help keep us flexible and you know, we're perfectly willing to chuck features of the game if it gets in the way of you know, the success of the studio. Um, so I guess you know, just, being able, just being able to like say, well, we're not doing that and not having a publisher say, well, you agree to it. We didn't, so we're not. Um. <laughs> Man, this is really good stuff. So one last question for me, I would say, uh, and just judging by, you know, this being new information to me and probably a lot of the people in the audience as well, but there is a lot of interest in like seeing this business model try itself out for people who want to start smaller companies too. So if you could aid them with a little bit of advice on 
pitching this to somebody who this is new to, you know what I mean? Like you've just explained it to an audience who's probably unfamiliar with this revenue share strategy. So if you were then talking to us as if we were contractors or potential people who we were going to work with you, I guess like what's your one, two punch to say like, Hey, it's different, but here's how it works. And here are the benefits, you know, so that this is why you should join the team. Um, we're, if we're having those conversations, we would be very transparent with the sure. revenue from the previous games and say, so here's, here's how it's worked in the past for us. Um, and just to be very clear about the vision that we have for the game that we'd want you to come and join us with and be very clear about the work that we want you to do. Uh, beyond that, um, one of the pitches that I made to get somebody to join the revenue share team for our third game was... Um, there's a lot of freedom that comes with this. Like you're not going to have a, at least the way that we work, you're not going to have someone telling you, you should do it this way. You should do it that way. If we're approaching you and we're coming to you to work with you to join us, it's not only a risk for you to uh, forego that pay until release comes out. It can be a risk for us because we're going to place, you know, all the trust for making the AI for our next game in your hands. And while we'll have opinions and want to work with you on it, just like you, everyone on, on, on a game dev team has opinions. Um, but, you know, we're going to give you the freedom to explore the area of expertise that we brought you on to work with in a way that you may not have been able to do if you were uh, working on a salary or working on a specific task. We're going to really, you know, allow you, if you join us on the RevShare team, to take advantage of your talents and hopefully, you know, being able to fully express yourself in ways that you maybe couldn't will help us bring our next project together to a better level than we could have without using this model. If, I hope that makes sense. No, oh, yeah, it's, I appreciate that more so because I now know everything I need to say <laughs> when I want to talk to someone. Like, okay, here's why you're joining our team and here's how it's going to benefit you mm-hmm. in your career because you're going to get so much access to the freedom, really. Yeah. You know? And I, when you hit the moonlighting thing, like, I really appreciated that because mm-hmm. a lot of us are delving into two, three different things outside of work or outside of jobs. And mm-hmm. we always encourage that yeah. here at Game Dev Unchained. And, you know, anything that helps legitimize those efforts, right? Like, hey, no, look, we've got a model in place. It's, it's legal. Here's how it's going to work. Here's how you get paid. And here's how you can cross verify what you've done against what other people have done. Yeah. So you always know throughout the entire project where you sit, mm-hmm. right? Like that's always been one of my biggest worries when I know that I'm going to or working for any sort of studio or a situation where people are like, hey, you know, there's bonus involved here. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, cool. So what's the criteria for earning set bonus? Yeah. And then if I can't, like, if I can't directly trace that to a performance-related thing, I get concerned. Because that's like, oh, someone can just wave their wand and be like, oh, you know, well, let's, you know, your worksmanship consistency. (laughs) You had a specific answer. We won't call this person out. But, like, (laughs) you had a specific answer where the person just cut through all that. It's like, well, it's meant to look like uh, not very transparent. It's convoluted for a reason. And it's like, what? <laughs> no, okay, so for me, you like any, any situation like that, right? Like, yeah. Even if I know that this is money that is potentially related to performance of a product that is in the future, right? right? 
my share of said number that is currently imaginary needs to be based on tangibles. Yes. That's, it's as simple as that. If you want my performance, if you want me to feel comfortable in knowing the risk that I'm about to take, especially if you're going to say to me that that is also part of my expected compensation for why I'm supposed to be here, yeah. then I need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt what X is, what Y is, and what Z is. Even if they're multipliers of something that doesn't yet exist, I need to know at least the math part that I'm responsible for. I need to be able to know how to control those things, mm -hmm. right? Because apparently I'm being evaluated somehow on oh, tangibles, yes. but I'm being rewarded with intangibles. Exactly. That is, I, I so. Yeah, at some yeah. point you gotta, you gotta call on that. <laughs> and I, I have a and feeling that Matt has been the part of that. Yeah. Hopefully the restaurant model makes that more transparent. Like the criteria that you're going to be judged on is did we succeed in releasing a game that was successful? Um, if so, congratulations. Everyone earns their awards for that. Um, if not, well, then we have some soul searching to do and figure out how we can do better. Um, but yeah, like the concrete takeaways are, did we succeed with the launch? Did the game succeed? If so, yay, we all get money. Hopefully that simple math <laughs> like if i can sign yeah. off and be okay with like if we succeed i succeed it's like i'm okay with that yeah. but uh from our experience at least mine uh that has never been the case i see our game everywhere it's being reported as the number one game of the year <laughs> but my pockets don't feel like number one of the year you know what i mean it's like now now we're getting into like really sticky ground you're not telling me exactly what's going on and it really discouraged me as an employee to keep going forward because I've been already cheated, right? You've already, already done it once. I've already been done once. So it's my, my, I'm already out the door mentally and then shortly after physically yeah. uh, in a lot of these type of studios. Well, and I guess where I stand as a professional and why I appreciate your model and it, your model may be different, right? But it's honest, it's open and it's transparent. Yes. It's like, look, it may be something you're not used to, but here is literally how it works. Yes. Everyone here can explain yeah. this to you because everyone here is on this. Right. Everyone knows where they stand. Like that kind of transparency gives you faith in you taking that risk, mm -hmm. right? Because everyone is sharing the risk in making a product, especially in the game industry, right? Totally makes sense. The execs are taking a risk. The employees are taking a risk. The fans are taking a risk and the publisher is taking a risk. Every single person has skin in the game. That's why in a situation like that, no one wants to be lied to or nobody wants to be like, you only get to see a sliver of like what the real situation is because like I'm in the pot too. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah, you can't, you can't come after a week of the game being in the headlines saying number one and be like, uh -oh. Hey guys, we didn't hit our targets <laughs> that we thought we would and then drive off in your new car. It's uh -oh. like, all right, so now, it's getting <laughs> now it's getting very personal. <laughs> this is not a hypothetical, by the way. Uh, this is exactly what happens at least to us. Uh, but these are the type of things that we're pretty much used to. You uh -oh. say my piece of the pie got jeopardized because overall the game isn't performing performing as well as we did but can, how come your piece of the pie is so much bigger than mine man we shared the same game so i mean i guess where i stand in again and i'm gonna i think brandon will co-sign to this is like yeah. we're all adults here right yeah. like we can handle the truth yeah. good or bad yeah. like you brought us here for a reason to be a part of a team yeah. so we're gonna be gung-ho yeah right and what i love about your model is again like I'm, I'm telling you it's new to me like the whole talk i was learning and paying attention because i was like okay let me see what this is like 
But where I can't discredit anything from you is nothing was hidden. Yes. Nothing in that. Nothing in that from it's is refreshing. hidden. Refreshing. Yeah. Like without you telling me anything, I could do my own cross verification. <laughs> yeah, like okay, so I did this yeah. much, and I was here for this. This Excel I, sheet. This boom. is how much we have to make. Now let me check Bank of America. Okay. Like, well, God dang, he didn't lie. You he know what I mean? Did not lie. Man. <laughs> yeah, we do. We are. We are perfectly open and transparent. Every reporting period, whether that's a month yeah. or a quarter, whenever we get Huge. revenue, we just sort of say. We just sort of say to everybody. Um, here's the money that came in. Here's what everybody made. Yeah. Yay! Like, so, so being open and trans- being open and transparent uh, can be a uh, transition for some people, but it's really foundational to this approach. All right, we got a question from the audience. I'd like to read to you now. It's from. Uh, San Wazar, I believe that's how you say it. Question for Matthew is, what kind of roles do you have on your team? I'm guessing only a core team of must-have developers. I can't imagine counting a QA tester's hours time is the same as an art director's time or a network architect's hours. So what do you have to say about that? I know this is going to be interesting. Um, on our team, we like working on our next game full-time is me as a designer, Rob is a programmer, lead engineer. Um, somebody, uh, our lead artist, our UI, UX designer. Um, and then uh, we have somebody doing AI programming and somebody doing graphics program because um, we're making a 3D game, I, which we hadn't done before. Um, however, what I would say is that if we got to a point where we would feel that the game needed a UI UX, or a, sorry, a QA person to come in and really help us mm-hmm. polish the experiences of the game and really like, not, not not just find bugs, but help us tune, help us refine, help us change things. Um, then yes, we would consider that contribution to be the same as mine as a lead designer or as our art directors. Um, because when at the end of the day, if a player comes along and finds one of those bugs that we could have destroyed and writes a nasty long review on steam or post a long youtube video like the cost of that could be really high and if somebody's hour of work avoids all of that like i can't say that like you you can't price that like i I don't understand trying to like price the person that helped us avoid a terrible youtube video or a terrible stream um so yeah we if if it came if, if we did have uh somebody doing exclusive qa on the team then they would be treated the same as anyone else. Right now, QA is sort of something that's everybody does as we play, because we play our own games a lot. Um, and, but yeah, if, if we decided, well, this, as, as a designer or as an art director or as a lead engineer, we don't have the bandwidth to do a lot of the QA and we should bring in somebody to do it, then there we would absolutely treat them the exact same way. Because like I said, you can't, point to what the one thing that makes game a success you can't point to one thing that makes it a failure and we all came together to make it and make it work and so yes yeah, so we would absolutely if we had a need for that role they would be treated just the same as anyone else so you got uh, another question from me personally uh just something i was thinking of as you were describing your kind of workplace stuff just now um and the value of each person's contributions kind of like you're saying i can't say that this is more valuable than that to us in the grand scheme especially if it's going to help us avoid something costly now i imagine maybe all of your employees don't have your same view or the same feeling about their value right have you ever had an issue where somebody was like you know what i actually think that 
I'm more valuable than X or I'm more valuable than Y. Now seeing everything out in the open like this, have you run into any sort of problems where people have like tried to, I, I guess, change the status quo for themselves? <laughs> Why don't you point nope. to that person <laughs> that you think you're more? Okay. Oh, I said, no. Right? It's like, no, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, like it's, part of being very, it's part of being very, very open and transparent from the get go. Like, this is how it's going. To, this is how it's going to work, and that's that. Like, and in we've been doing that. Like, eighteen forty nine came out in May of two thousand fourteen. So we've been paying out revenue share uh, to the whole team since for both eighteen forty nine and high rise since then, and that's never happened. Um, yeah, I think. You know, as you bring people onto the team, it's important to, you know, sort of bring people on who are comfortable with that role. And so we're just very open and transparent, like this is how it's going to work. And I, I have to think about how I would handle that if it did happen, but it hasn't. So I haven't had to. <laughs> I, I like the more we talk, the more I'm in, intrigued and or actually, no, refreshed to see like how far telling the truth goes mm -hmm. uh, in, in this day and age of business. You know, ethics yeah. is everything to me. Yeah. So I, I commend you, man. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I think the game really business. Go ahead. I was going to say, and that, and, and that carries into sort of, like I said, in my talk, we got lucky with our publishing relationship with Calypso and Casito. Like we've always been fully honest with them and we sort of have established a relationship where they are with us too. Um, and that's sort of foundational to us really working together to make and release games together. Um, so again, it's just transparency and honesty, just avoid so many problems down the line. Definitely true because, um, I think the game business is a mystery already <laughs> by itself. We don't need to add on to that saying like, well, when exactly I'm going to get paid this bonus if you're talking about. Like yeah, it's like it's just too many things that, that you have to kind of keep up with. And as a developer with a team of developers who are already dealing with technical issues of just making the game, do you really want that in the back of your mind? It's like, you know, it'd be nice to kind of be paid by the end of this. That, that, that toasty build bonus to keep talking about a revenue share um, getting that out of the way knowing from the get-go what you're getting into is always going to be very helpful and I think it just builds uh, accountability uh, a lot stronger uh, from the very beginning to the very end uh, without you know if we don't do well you don't do well I mean that's that's the way it is so yeah all right. All right. So, so uh, yeah. Matt, we want to thank you. Obviously, we're at that point. Uh, we do have your, your Twitter handle up there, uh, at Matthew Vigilana, your name. Keep it simple. Yeah. Uh, but also, people can follow you at Soma Sim. Is there anything else you would like to plug? This is your platform to do so. Uh, now we're just, we'll hopefully be talking to talk more about our next project in the next few months. So, just follow us at Soma Sim Games, and that's about it. It's been a pleasure, and thank you guys for putting this together and providing this resource for everyone. It's been great. Oh, man, thank you for being a part of it. Like th that's where all of our thanks always starts. Is 
you guys are creating the the list of people we get to show each day without you all it'd just be me and brandon pulling stuff out of our butt like hey how to dress nice on your first day of the job you know you guys bring the real experience so it wouldn't be anything without you so matt thank you for you know pulling an hour's worth of content for us we really appreciate it uh you know definitely got a lot of comments in the twitch streams going back and forth to like trying to understand it and then once everybody clicked everyone's like oh okay cool we get it we get it we understand 100 percent. so you've opened a lot of eyes today and i believe i'm speaking for everyone when we say we wish you nothing but success uh we hope you have a wonderful development future and please stay involved with us we would love to keep sharing positive stories about you whenever you have good news to tell us thanks take care guys